0: my name is Chad and I am one of the pastors here and a special welcome to our guests Uh, I'd love to to meet you after the service you can just come right up to the front or find me in the foyer and we could just get to know each other a little bit well it's now the second week of Advent Christmas is a coming Each day, so far, my wife and daughters have been uh, taking advantage of all the Christmas festivities. Friday, they saw the Nutcracker at Tyler Junior College. Uh, Faith, my oldest daughter, came home and said, "'Dad, I wanna change my name to Clara," the star of the show. And then yesterday, uh, Nancy took the girls to the Tyler Public Library where they went through a a live Candyland and uh, then after that they went somewhere else to to meet santa so for them it's just a season filled with cheer and happiness and great happenings but that's not the case for all of us that is certainly not the case for those who this time of the year no matter how many times they hear that song played it's the most wonderful time of the year No, for a lot of us, it's the most sorrowful time of the year. For many of us who have lost a loved one, it's this time of year where the grief of their loss is heightened. Or for any of us whose families are strained or fractured, there's just a great sense of what was. There's a void. Or perhaps you're a parent who wants to give your kids all those gifts that their heart desires, but money's just tight, and you feel a sense of desperation. It's a season of great extremes. Based on circumstances, some are... Living it up, so to speak, taking advantage of all the trappings that our North American culture has placed on Christmas. And then there's others that are experiencing a great disportion, disproportionate feeling of loneliness or despair or sadness or loss. Our text this morning is Matthew chapter two as the Treadwells read. And it's the visit of the wise men to the Christ child. It is a corrective in many ways to all that we have placed on the Advent season, to all that we have placed on Christmas and said, this is Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. But for so many of us, that is not a reality. That is That is not achievable due to the circumstances of your life. And as we'll see in our text, that is not what Christmas is. That is certainly not what this Advent season that we're currently in is. It's not about the stuff. It's not about even family or giving gifts, but we're fish, so to speak, swimming in a fishbowl that's filled with that, that tells us that's what it is. And so our sermon this morning, we are going to look at the heart of what Christmas and the Advent season really is. It's about worshiping Christ. It's about worshiping the Christ child who has come into our world as our King and as our Savior. We're going to look at a negative example in our passage of king Herod and we're going to learn from king Herod based on his his poor example how to worship Christ and then we're going to look at the wise men and learn from their their positive example how to worship Christ because we talk about worship but I want to put some flesh on that what is it look like to worship Christ this season and my my heart in all of this is so that we can get closer to God's heart regarding Christmas regarding Advent and stay out of those two ditches if you will of just loneliness and sadness and desperation or out of the extreme busyness and the happenings and all the fun that, that's good. My wife loves it. My daughters love it. But it's not, it's not the heart. It's not what God has for us this season. So we're going to begin by reading verses 1 and 2. And what's really fascinating about these first two verses is we really get the whole gist of the story. We're going to see our main characters, We're going to see the setting of the story, and we're going to see the focus. So read with me Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, in verse one, we see the, the main character, Jesus. And also in this verse, we see the other characters, Herod the king and the wise men. We also can understand that the setting of this passage is in the days of Herod. Scholarship tells us that this is approximately 6 BC. Herod would, would die. years later in 4 BC we also see the location it's Bethlehem of Judea and Jerusalem Bethlehem and Jerusalem were two cities or towns in Judea which is southern Israel and then we see the focus the focus of this passage the focus of Advent and Christmas is to worship Christ the King of the Jews so let's look now at King Herod. When we worship Christ, we worship Christ by submitting to him as king. We worship Christ by submitting to him as king. With Herod here, we're going to see in verses 3-8, through eight, King Herod was a proud and paranoid man. He was determined to preserve his illegitimate kingdom at all costs, a proud and paranoid man determined to preserve his illegitimate kingdom at all costs. Let's read verses three through eight as we focus on King Herod here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. In verse three here, we see that Herod the king was troubled. Why would the king be troubled by the birth of a child. You see, Herod was an Idumean. That's a Greek word for Edom. We just spent a series in Genesis. Edom is Esau. Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. This makes him an illegitimate king of the Jews. The Jews were Descendants of Jacob, not Esau. And yet here is an Edomite ruling over Jacob's descendants. The wise men announced in verse 2 that the king of the Jews had been born. This troubling by Herod was no doubt because he felt threatened. His illegitimate kingdom felt threatened by the birth of a legitimate king. You see, Herod was appointed ruler by the Romans, and he was loyal to those Romans. Christ came from the right hand of God, and Christ is a descendant of David. He had arrived on the scene. The true king was here and the illegitimate king was troubled. That Jesus was a legitimate king is substantiated in a couple different ways. We see here in verse one, the location of his birth was in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was also the birthplace of David, the anointed king of Israel. And we see here that this place of birth is due to the fact that Augusta was taking a census and they were required to go back to their their home region, their place of where their lineage is from. And so Jesus going back there demonstrates his legal right as a descendant of David. And in fact, in chapter one of Matthew, you know what we see that, that long list of the genealogy of Jesus Christ? The point of that is to establish that legally, Jesus was a descendant of David. This Christ child, this one born in Bethlehem, was legitimate, and Herod was troubled. So the term Christ, I've thrown that around, and it's it's here in our text. In verse 4, you see that Herod himself says, where is this Christ to be born? This term Christ we use quite frequently. Its literal translation is anointed, anointed one. In the Old Testament, God through his prophet Samuel would anoint God's chosen king for that position as ruler. Samuel anointed ultimately David. And God established an eternal covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 saying, your kingdom will have no end. And we see that fulfillment in Christ who has no end, who is eternal. And the point of the Christ, even even small C, small C Christ, David, a picture of the big C, Jesus Christ, who would step on the scene later, the purpose was to represent the rule of God for God's people. And they would do that in a number of ways, but ultimately they were a just, righteous ruler. And what's interesting is a, a synonym for this type of rule or for this ruler is shepherd. Shepherd. It's a parallel, and we see Christ in verse 6 here in this, this prophecy of Micah. We see Christ called these two terms, ruler and Shepherd, a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse six. So Herod might have been a ruler, but he was no shepherd. His pride and paranoia were infamous in the Roman Empire. He was known as a great builder. If you study history, this man knew how to build. And he built some awesome things. But at the expense of his people, heavy taxation, indentured servitude. And he did it all for his own name, his sake. Not for the sake of his people and not for the glory of God. In fact, his paranoia grew in frightful ways. He murdered several children of his own and wives, all because he wanted to keep a grip on his illegitimate kingdom from any threat that might surface. This Paranoia. This pride, as I said, was infamous in the Roman Empire. In fact, we have a quote from Josephus, a Jewish historian, of Caesar Augustus speaking about Herod, saying, I would rather be Herod's swine than his son. I would be, I'd rather be Herod's swine than his son. And so we know this from history, but let's look at the text here. I want to show you. Herod's response to this news that Jesus, king of the Jews, had been born. In verse 3, we've shared, he was troubled. In verse 4, we see him assembling the chief priests and he inquired of them. In verse 7, we see that he summoned the wise men Secretly, he ascertained from them when the star had appeared. And then in verse 8, we see him commanding the wise men by sending them. Go, search, bring me word. The entirety of his response, Herod, the king, is one in which he is expending all of his energy to maintain something that's not really his. It's not his. In a perfect world, the proper response of King Herod in this time when the star appeared, the wise men came, the prophecy was was spoken, would have been to follow, not send the wise men, follow the wise men as they followed the star and take to heart this prophecy, to go see this Christ child, and for King Herod to take his crown off and to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Leon Morris, a commentator on this passage, writes, Herod and the religious and political leaders could have followed the magi as they followed the star, but instead, They followed their own ambitions. We might not be in positions of supreme authority like Herod, no doubt. But each of us does have a measure of authority in our lives. And this authority allows us to make decisions, ambitious ones, as well as plans for our future. One way we we can worship Christ in this season through our submission to him as king is by surrendering to him our plans. Surrendering to him our ambitions. It is an act of worship. Make no mistake about it. When you hold your plans loosely, when you give Christ Your hopes, your dreams, the story that you would like for Him to write for you, the story that so often grabs a hold of us and pulls us in a different direction away from Him. Trust Him, the King and the Great Shepherd, with those godly ambitions. With those fears that ungodly ambitions lead you to try to prevent. With those plans that you have for yourself, your career, your family, your kids. Worship the Christ through submitting to him as king. By surrendering all of those at his feet knowing that he cares for you, that he loves you, that he is trustworthy as your shepherd, the anointed one of God. Now, because of our flesh, this is extraordinarily difficult. It's a constant discipline. It's a daily decision. It's sometimes minute by minute. The flesh are are the residual self-centered desires we have from before conversion, which screen me, mine, my which depends on yourself for preservation. This inward turning, like Herod, actually prevents you from enjoying what God desires for you. Now, God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. But how much sweeter is it to walk step in step with him, trusting him, than it is attempting to do something that's not really for you to do. Be master of yourself, master of your future. We let loose our grip, our ambitions, we surrender everything to him, the shepherd king, allowing him to lead us. But it's challenging. Praise God we have a community Praise God, the church is a family where we can be honest and open with one another, or we can lean on one another as we seek the Lord together, especially in this season of Advent. So we see King Herod as an illegitimate king, unwilling to bend the knee, unwilling to lay his throne at the feet of the true king. And through his pride and paranoia, Herod is a negative example we can learn from today. By submitting to Christ through the surrender of our plans, our ambitions, trusting that He'll securely move us forward. He's trustworthy. Let's look now at the wise men. As we look at the wise men, we as God's people, we worship Christ the King by treasuring Him supremely. We worship Christ the King by treasuring him supremely. The wise men, as we'll see in verses 9 through 12, they traveled a long distance, following a star and then a prophecy in order to worship the Christ and honor him with gifts. In verse 1, as we've read, the wise men traveled from the east now, the wise men are a bit of a mystery, so if you came here to hear the, uh, the answer to who the wise men are, or much less who the, what the star is, I, I'm sorry, these things are going to remain a mystery. But we do know that the wise men traveling from the east most likely came from Babylon or from Persia. The route they took was probably the same route Abraham took, as God called him out of Ur, up the Fertile Crescent and into the Promised Land. Now, the wise men were wise in the world's eyes for three primary reasons. One, they were experts in what's called astrology, simply the study of stars. We, we can engage in that today. But also through astronomy, the interpretation or the meaning of stars' activity. And we as believers are not in a position to do that. As well as they were able to interpret dreams. So because of this expertise, they were considered wise. And in Persia and Babylon, they were of a priestly caste. And they held great political power. Now, we really don't even know if there were three in number. We're not quite sure how many wise men or magi, the Latin term, there were. But because of the three gifts, church history is commonly believed there were three. Now, the star, as I said earlier, the star is even more mysterious than the wise men. Let's look at the activity of this star. In verse 2, the star rose, for we saw his star when it rose. In verse 7 on down the passage, we see that Herod wanted to ascertain from them when the star had appeared. So it appeared... In verse 7 still, no, excuse me, go go to verse 9. We see that it went before them until it came to rest. Now, that's very peculiar. How does a star go before someone and come to a rest? Well, we really don't know, but what we do know is it was leading the wise men, truly leading them. And in fact, it came to rest over what we believe to be the exact house of where Mary and the Christ child were. But what exactly this star was, nobody knows. There's lots of theories. It could have been God's glory. It, it could have been just a miraculous appearing of God's glory and have nothing to do with what we call stars today. That's possible. Or it could have been some kind of confluence of two planets coming together. Is a bright light in the sky that these magi, these wise men, would have studied. Or it, it could have been a supernova, the dying of a planet. Nobody knows. But what we do know from history, history tells us that at this time, during the birth of Jesus, during the days of the Roman Empire, what history tells us is that The birth or death of great kings was marked by some sort of astrological event. So this was not, hey, there's a star, maybe there's a king that was born. No, this happened at a time when, look at that. A great king has been born. God had prepared the people, or better yet, God had appeared to the people in a way it was unmistakable that a great king had been born. No one was debating that fact. The theological point is that God revealed himself in a way that non-Jewish people would understand. Now that's important. The Messiah, yes, is Jewish. And he was, is king of the Jews. But he's more than that. God revealed himself in such a way that unbelievers would know what is taking place and that he would draw them from long distances to know and worship Christ, the great king. Tim Keller writes, the whole purpose of the passage, the point Matthew is trying to make is that the worldly wisdom of the wise men told them they needed a king, a great king, but it could not tell them how to find that king. It led them to Jerusalem where they heard the word of God, Micah chapter five, go to Bethlehem. The star led them from there to the house. God's general revelation, his revealing of himself in creation is designed to draw people to himself, in the word. And it's in the word we encounter God, where we can know him truly for who he is and walk in humble submission, worshipfully, worshipfully before him. The Magi received the revelation, these Gentiles, and they responded. The Jews, on the other hand, they had it had it all. Micah was theirs. They understood the prophecy. They could have seen the astrological event, whatever it was. Bethlehem was five miles away from Jerusalem. Five. And yet we see the Jewish leaders do nothing. What's worse is in verse Three, you see that phrase in verse 3? He was troubled, that is King Herod, and all Jerusalem was with him. All Jerusalem was troubled, not amazed by this great event. They were troubled. Now, why would they be troubled? At this point in time, Jerusalem is the center of all of the political uh, world of, of Israel, as well as the religious capital of Israel, they had, they had roped themselves in with Herod. Herod actually had appointed many of these chief priests to their position. These political leaders and these religious leaders had everything to gain if Herod's position as illegitimate king remained stable, and they could lose all that they had worked for if this king of the Jews ended up being who he truly was. And so they were in a position to follow, not the star, not the prophecy, not the wise men, they were in a position to stay close to King Herod, the illegitimate king for those ambitions, for that preservation of their position, their power, their prestige. Just a few chapters later, Matthew six, Jesus would say, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's such a sad contrast. These, These magi were willing to travel thousands of miles and in doing so they demonstrated their treasure, this longing for a great king and their heart showed that through their obedience. The Jews, Jewish leaders, let me preface that, the Jewish leaders, Their treasure and their heart was elsewhere inward turning self-seeking self-preserving this great contrast is actually heightened in verse 10 look at how the magi responded in verse 10 when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It wasn't enough to say they were joyful. No, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One commentator said they were deliriously happy. Now, it's easy for us to rail against Herod and the leaders, but when we study passages like this in the New Testament with this troubling response that they had, toward Christ and that would escalate all the way to Christ's death may that as God's people bring us to a place on our knees where we praise him for his grace and his mercy that he has drawn us to himself that we might know him and worship him because apart from God's grace, apart from his mercy we are no different than Herod and these religious leaders there's nothing any of us have done to earn our place in God's family, it is a gift a gift that leads to worship. In verse 11, we see the Magi's journey is complete. In verse 11, they saw the child and they fell down and they worshiped him. At long last, they had found the great king that they were searching for. And it's at this point, we see that the wise men truly were wise Now, in the Old Testament Proverbs, we see that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These wise men expressed their fear, that is their awe, their adoration, their reverence for God by worshiping this Christ child. Truly wise. They offered him gifts in verse 11. In verse 11, these gifts that we see here are gifts of gold, they're gifts of frankincense, and they're gifts gifts of myrrh. At the very least, these gifts demonstrate that they recognized this child for who he was, a great king. Now, church history tells us that it's possible these gifts are also symbols. We see all the way dating back to Irenaeus in the second century BC that these gifts each demonstrated who Christ was. R.T. France, a great uh, New Testament scholar, says, Since the time of Irenaeus, gold represented royalty, frankincense, divinity, and myrrh, his future death and burial. These magi, as I said, are a positive example for how we can step into this season and worship. We see that they worshiped Christ by treasuring him supremely. One way we as believers today in this season can worship Christ, treasuring him supremely is by honoring Christ with our time. Oh, how we treasure our time, I know I do. I always have something important to do. My to-do list never ends. My kids never stop needing something or wanting something. But how we can worship Christ, treasuring him supremely by honoring him with our time. And it's a sacrifice for us. To just sit at his feet reading His Word, praying to Him, meditating upon His goodness and His greatness, crying out to Him. It is an act of worship. This this sacrifice of your time honors Him just as these Magi honored Him with their gifts, their sacrifices. And our culture we turn time into a commodity we can control it we believe but that's not true so I'm going to use this term hopefully it will stick with you waste time with Jesus waste it pour it out shatter the jar of time that you think you control draw near to him, especially in this season of Advent and Christmas. Ironically, for many of us, it is more difficult now to treasure him supremely than it is at other times of the year. Why is that? Because we're either focused on all the happenings or the happiness that keeps us busy, all these fun activities that draw our attention away from him draw our heart's affections away from desiring him supremely, or we're struggling. It's a hard season emotionally for lots of very painful reasons. And so may this text be an encouragement to those who are struggling and a correction to us who aren't necessarily sinning. I'm not saying that in any stretch but who perhaps aren't treasuring the Christ as we we are to treasure him this time. May it bring us together here in the middle and may we as God's people walk arm in arm, submitting to him as king, surrendering everything to him, even our Christmas plans, and treasuring him supremely, honoring him with our time. And so in this season of extremes and disproportions, may we as God's people worship the Christ who has come, our great King, our Savior, and who will come again. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love which is Christ. We see him now so clearly in this text. May your spirit stir in us the desires Stoken in us the ability to walk with your son deeply and closely now in this season. I do pray that you would comfort those of us who are hurting. I pray that we as your people would be one. That our focus would be upon Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.